This morning, uh, we celebrate Easter. We celebrate the day over 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the dead. As that day started, his body lay lifeless in the tomb. It had been three days since his heart pumped blood through his body. Three days since his lungs expanded to take in any air. Three days since his brain had any activity. His body lay lifeless in a tomb. Yet, in a miracle, in a moment, God's spirit shot life back into him. In that moment, he inhaled air. His heart began to beat again. And men and women, with that miracle, everything changed for sinful humanity. So that people who are dead in their own trespasses and sins can be revived again. It's that miracle that we're going to consider today in the sermon. And we're going to look at one of the most profound texts on the resurrection of Jesus found anywhere in the Holy Scripture. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 20 through 25. Before we do that, uh, in verses 12 through 19, right before this, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had played with the thought for a moment that Christ was not risen, and he recounted some of the consequences that would follow. You can see this very clearly in your Bible. He said, if Jesus did not rise, then, and he goes through a list of possibilities, if Jesus did not rise, then preaching is empty, futile. Faith is worthless. Paul and the other apostles would be false witnesses. He continues, faith would be utterly useless. We would still be in our sins under the wrath of God. And those who've died in Christ will have utterly perished beyond all hope. Ultimately, he says, if this is true, if Jesus did not rise, we of all people in this world are the most to be pitied. The most to be pitied. But in verse 20 through 25, Paul departs from this brief consideration and he boldly affirms the opposite. That Christ indeed has risen from the dead and then he considers a few effects of that miracle. I want to work through this text with you and 
And I want to point these things out to you from God's holy word. So Paul starts with a powerful affirmation of Christ's resurrection. Look with me at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I love the powerful words at the beginning of verse uh, 20 here. But in fact. Some translations translate it, but now. And in verse 20, Paul defies those who say there is no resurrection of the dead. And he explicitly defends the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And affirms that he has indeed risen again. Men and women, that is the single most important affirmation that you need to make as well. Paul, in considering all the skeptical objections of people who say there is no resurrection, says, but in fact, Jesus did arise. I ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you affirm that as well? In order to be saved, you must believe that Christ died on a cross and he rose three days later. The whole of scripture is quite clear on where we stand with the Lord as sinful men and women. I think of what the scriptures say in Romans 3, 23, for instance, when it says, For all have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory. All of us are sinners, and we fall short of God's perfect standard. I think of another clear text when Paul in Galatians 3, in verse 22, says that you can summarize all of scripture with three words. He said the conclusion of Scripture is this. Here are your three words. All under sin. That is, every person who has ever lived in this world outside of the Son of God is a sinner and is condemned in his sin. That leads us to the clear message of Scripture. Not only are all sinners, but then we find as we're reading through the scriptures that the consequences of sin is death in hell. Perhaps you know this verse, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. As we consider what Jesus Christ himself said a few years before Paul wrote that, Jesus, when he was giving the very important sermon on the kingdom parables, said this about the nature of that death. Matthew 13, verse 29. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and will throw the evil into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So as we consider the resurrection today, we need to know why Jesus came. 
why he died on the cross and why God through the Spirit energized him to be victorious over sin and death. And one of those reasons is because of our sin, we are all condemned to death and that death, that eternal death would be existence in hell forever and ever. The scriptures also make it clear that the only way to be delivered is Jesus. It is his death and resurrection that all of us as sinful men and women must believe in order to escape the punishments of hell. Think of Acts 16 and verse 31 when Paul the Apostle said to the Philippian jailer, Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I think of a passage I learned as a small child. Peter is standing before the great council, the Sanhedrin, and he tells them this. He says, neither is there salvation found in any other name. For there is no other person under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The only way to be delivered is Jesus. Do you believe that today? Where do you stand on the resurrection of Jesus? In your heart? Do you affirm it like Paul the Apostle? But indeed, he has risen from the dead. I remember a painful conversation I had with a friend a few years ago. His name was Gene. Gene was formerly married to a woman named Millie who came to know the Lord at, at the church that I was at at that time. Millie had died a few years before this conversation with Gene, but uh, on her deathbed, she asked me never to give up on her husband. So off and on, I tried to stay in Gene's life. But one day, Gene called me up on the phone and surprised me with some news. He asked me to meet with him and a prospective bride uh, at a restaurant. That's where I found out something shocking. The new woman that Jean had met and intended to marry was also a believer in Jesus Christ. He was not. And so this gave me one last opportunity to ask Jean where he stood. So I think being led by God, I asked him specifically, Jean, where do you stand? on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? And to be honest with you, he tried to avoid the question. He said Jesus was a good man, religious teacher, held up by Christianity, and many people believe that he resurrected. But then I asked him the question one more time directly, and he said this. He said, I do not believe that any human could rise from the dead. It just can't happen when the heart stops and the brain goes dead and the lungs stop taking in air. So Gene was not a Christian. And tragically, Gene died unexpectedly that same week. 
went to the hospital for a routine checkup. He had a heart attack and he died. Men and women, according to scripture, unless Gene changed his mind, he is now in hell, separated from Christ, who died and rose again for the sake of our sins. The beginning of this passage, we have Paul's affirmation. He believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Will you believe that? Will you today, in humble, private prayer, say to God, Lord, I believe that Jesus died and rose again for my sins. Yet there's more to learn in the text, and I want to keep moving. Next, Paul describes more about the nature of Christ's resurrection in verses 20, middle verse 20, through verse 25. And while this text is theologically loaded, Paul essentially describes the effect of the resurrection of Jesus in two ways. So this part is about the effects. What did Jesus' resurrection produce? And there are two. First, his resurrection is a guarantee of the resurrection of believers. Look at the middle of verse 20. The, The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man it came death, by a man it came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so all also in Christ shall all be made alive. First, he says, the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. It's language perhaps we don't use very much anymore, but uh, I, I think it's, it's easily understandable if you know some of the rest of Scripture. The word first fruits, I think, is used in different places to describe the first crops of a harvest of fruit that would be reaped. In the book of Leviticus, for instance, the Israelite people were to take the first fruits, the first fruit that was produced, and they were to offer it to the Lord in a sacrifice with the assumption in faith, believing that there would be more fruit uh, that would be coming. Paul speaks of Christ's resurrection here as the first fruits of a harvest of dead bodies that will be brought back to life. So in a sense, what he's saying here is the resurrection of Jesus guarantees a resurrection of those who follow him in the future. In another passage of scripture, Paul says this very succinctly, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. He says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. And so what he's doing at this part of the passage is he's saying that this is a certain guarantee. The fact that Jesus rose again means that we will if we believe in him. And this is the best guarantee we could ever experience. Better than any lifetime guarantee you could ever be given. I think I've purchased at least two products before with a lifetime guarantee Okay, the problem is both companies no longer exist. (laughs) Okay, that guarantee is good for nothing. This guarantee 
goes beyond this life into the next. It will happen. As Jesus rose, so too will his followers. And Paul explains the basis for why he understands Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection in verses 21 and 22 by drawing an analogy with Adam and the entrance of death. He says, Adam brought death upon all humanity. That's Adam and Eve from the garden. Adam's sinful act brought death upon all humanity. That is, the one act of one man brought death to all human beings. Sin and condemnation and death came into the world via Adam. But so too, life from the dead comes by the act of one man, Jesus. That is, all who are in Christ will be made alive. Some strange or difficult language here to to fully process, but he's saying all those in Adam, I think he's referring to the entire human race, all those in Adam are brought sin and death because of his act, but all those in Christ, referring to those who believe in Christ, will be made alive. See, just to make this very clear for us here this morning, we are not all going to go to the same place when we die. There are two different destinies for people in this room today. Everyone will go to one of two different places. There will be a judgment. And people will go to heaven or hell. And as we leave this morning, we'll walk out the doors being either in Adam, condemned by sin, or we'll walk out in Christ. And the decision you make regarding Christ is so important that your entire eternal destiny hinges on it. We're all in Adam by nature. We can be in Christ by his grace through believing in him, repenting of our sins. It's at this point in scripture, I think, that we learn that the only thing that can deal with death is resurrection. It's the only thing greater, more powerful than death. It's Christ's resurrection. I hope you understand that death, in some senses, does reign over humanity today. It's the one calendar event that we're all going to keep lest the Lord returns. As a culture, I know we try not to think about it. We try to ignore it. We even make death look uh, as much like life as we can. We put glasses on the person we love. We comb their hair. We dress them up in their best suit. 
We surround them with as many flowers as we can as a culture because we don't like death. We want to make it appear like life. But the reality is we cannot do anything by ourselves to change it. There is truly only one solution, one remedy, and that is Jesus. So as Christians, we celebrate that Jesus was raised again from the dead. And in this way, we're unique to any other religion in the world. No other religion in the world has an Easter. They might have holy cities, Medina, Mecca, okay, but they have those holy cities and they go there to mourn a death. They do not celebrate the resurrection of a Savior. Notice what some prominent Christian scholars say about the importance of the resurrection to Christianity. The old commentators Robertson and Plummer said this, they said, Christianity stands or falls with the fact of the resurrection. The whole thing stands or falls with this fact of the resurrection. An old preacher, H.D.A. Major, said this, he said, a crucified Messiah was no Messiah at all. He was one rejected by Judaism and accursed by God. It was the resurrection of Jesus which proclaimed him to be the Son of God with power. Or as the contemporary preacher John MacArthur says, he says, the resurrection is the heart that pumps life-giving blood into the gospel. Jesus' resurrection powerfully defeats death not only for himself, but as this text but all, says, but also for his brothers. The congregation of people who would believe in him. I ask you again, have you believed in him? Do you affirm this? Will you believe? So Paul continues, the resurrection of Jesus is not only a guarantee of our resurrection, it also creates an unbreakable chain of events, verses 23 through 25. I invite you to look down at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, or the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The Christ's resurrection sets in motion two future events. You can see them in your Bible with the word then. Middle of verse 23, beginning of verse 24. First, Christ's resurrection brings the resurrection of believers. And we've talked about this already. We've already seen the resurrection of Christ occurs first. But this text says, then an order... Or a company follows him. Word order here speaks of a military grouping. A division. A detachment of soldiers. But here it's used figuratively. Of Christians. Those who believe in Christ alone for their salvation. Their resurrection will come, the text says, at the coming of the Lord. That future event when the Lord returns from heaven. To deliver the church. And he snatches us up to heaven to be with him. At his coming. 
But that event and reality brings one more thing. Verse 24, then comes the end. Now Paul doesn't tell us exactly what end he's talking about here. Perhaps the end of this current world order as we know it. Two events occur just before or in conjunction with the end. First, Christ utterly defeats all the enemies of God. Verse 24, Christ reigns until he uh, destroys every rule and authority and power. His words are quite flexible to be describing any human or satanic spiritual ruler. Jesus will subject all defiant forces to God the Father, including the last enemy to be destroyed, which is death itself. Jesus has already endured death himself and rose victorious. He's already endured everything that death afflicts on humans. And he will one day come back so that we never experience death again. In heaven, there'll be no more death. But it's kind of like uh, the illustration of a father who takes a bee sting in his finger. Stinger goes into his finger so that his child will not be stung by the stinger. The bee might still exist for some time. It's a noisy pest but it won't sting again and will soon die. As Paul says it, he says it better than that illustration. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ will also hand the kingdom over to God the Father in the end. And while there are different ways that you could understand this, it appears to me that Christ must utterly defeat the last enemies of God, including death and perhaps even Satan himself. And then he will hand over sovereign rule of the world back to the Father. Every enemy being destroyed then comes the end so to understand the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ today you must know that it started an unbreakable chain of events Jesus arose believers are next and then the glorious end when Jesus hands the kingdom back to the father And God becomes all things to all beings. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. You are all naturally in Adam. Will you leave here today in Christ? I leave you with Paul's words in verse 21, 18 powerful words. For as by a man 
came death by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to proclaim the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His broken body on a cross. His lifeless corpse in a tomb. But his energized life brought back by the power of the Spirit. Lord, if there are some here today who do not believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation, I pray that they would do this, that in this quiet moment. With your heads continued to be bowed, I'm going to ask the instrumentalists to play through one verse of the song while the worship team and the choir come to lead us in this song. In, a quiet, in this quiet moment, I'd ask you to consider the nature of your own condition Will you leave this auditorium today in Adam, condemned by your sin, or in Christ, forgiven because of his death and resurrection for you? Let's spend some time considering these things.